If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've started in a series in the beginning of Lent on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we're calling it We Believe. And it's wonderful that we can be doing this in this particular moment of time because when we're in this tiny little story, we're backing up and looking at the creed at these big truths, this big story of God's salvation. And we get to have some perspective about what we're going through when we remember what God is doing in time and in history. So we're in the second section of the creed, which is on Jesus the Son. The first part was on God the Father. Second, we get to God the Son. And today we look at this interesting phrase in the creed, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, if all the phrases in the creed, uh, there's a couple that are controversial, and there's one that has been deeply controversial, especially in the 20th century, and that is this phrase, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, born of the Virgin Mary. In fact, many people, especially for the last 150 years, have said, why is this even in the creed at all? Why is this important to our faith? Uh, it's only mentioned, the virgin birth is only mentioned in two of the four gospels. It's only mentioned in Matthew and Luke. John and Mark don't even mention it at all. Um, the apostle Paul never mentions the virgin birth. None of the other New Testament authors ever mention the virgin birth. So many people have asked, maybe you have asked, why is this in the creed at all? Why did the early Christians decide that this was so important to our faith that they codified it in the most historic articulation of our faith? Well, the reason is, is because the virgin birth points to a much greater truth that is central to our salvation. It's like a signpost. You know, when you come to a signpost, uh, you don't stand there and say, wow, what a great signpost. Let's gaze upon the signpost. You know, you, you look at where the signpost is pointing. You want to move towards the destination that the signpost is pointing to. And the virgin birth is like a signpost that points to the greater truth of the incarnation. Uh, the truth that Christians affirm at Christmas and throughout the whole year that Jesus, the one that we see as our savior, we believe is fully God and fully man. Uh, he is at the same time completely like us and completely unlike us. That's the truth that the virgin birth points to and that truth of Jesus's humanity and divinity is absolutely central to our faith. He is the kind of savior that we need. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to unpack a little bit about what this truth of the virgin birth and the incarnation is, is really all about. But we're spending the most of our time this morning unpacking some implications for what the incarnation the, the resources that the incarnation gives us for this particular crisis moment that we find ourselves in as a community. So first of all, uh, what is this really all about? What does the incarnation and the virgin birth really mean? Well, this past week, you, you, you may have not known this unless you're an Episcopalian or a Roman Catholic, um, but on Thursday this past week, on March 25th, it was the day that the historic church celebrates the Feast of the Annunciation. Anybody know that? Feast of the Annunciation? Uh, the Feast of the Annunciation happens on March 25th because it's exactly nine months before December 25th, the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. So nine months to the day previous to that, we celebrate the Annunciation, which just simply means, it's a fancy way of saying announcement. It's the day that Gabriel announced to Mary that she would be pregnant uh, with the Messiah, the Son of God. 
Now, just for a little bit of context, I think this is pretty cool, that if you read the Bible and if you know the Bible carefully, that if you follow the whole story of God's salvation from Genesis onward, you'll see that at every point in the story that there is a significant turning point in the story of salvation, what do you find? You find a miraculous pregnancy and the promised child. So in Genesis 12, uh, when Abraham, when God came to Abraham, he said that he would bring a blessing to the nations out of his family and that would come through the miraculous pregnancy of his wife, Sarah. That's Genesis 12. Later on in the time of the judges, God raised up judges to lead his people and the greatest of the judges was Samson. And Samson's life also began with a miraculous birth to a woman who could not conceive. After the judges came the time of the prophets and the kings. And that story begins with Hannah, who also was unable to conceive, who also had, an, had, had, a, had a womb that was closed. And again, miraculous pregnancy gives birth to Samuel, who would anoint the first kings of Israel. So if you're a Jewish person and you're reading Matthew or Luke and you come to the, suddenly you see the angel Gabriel announcing a miraculous birth, your alarm bells are going off and saying something big is about to happen with the big story of God's salvation. So what we see is with this story of Jesus and his birth that on the one hand, there's great continuity with the whole story of Israel. And on the other hand, though, there's great discontinuity because we see that this miraculous pregnancy is very different. Look at verse 35. It says, the Holy Spirit, Gabriel says this to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, Mary, you are not going to need a man for this one. The Holy Spirit is going to bring about this child in your womb. What does that tell us? What does that tell us about who this child will be? Well, two very important things. First of all, that Jesus is fully human, just like us. He has a mother, just like us. He was born as a helpless little baby, uh, just like us. He had poopy diapers. Uh, he spit up on himself. Uh, he screamed. When he, when he was a toddler, he ran around the room grabbing stuff, just like some of your toddlers are doing right now at this very moment. <laughs> Uh, there was an early heresy in the church in the, in the early centuries called docetism, which suggested that Jesus was just seemed like he was human. He was really just sort of like God in a, a human disguise, and that he was really just like a superhuman who could never really be cut, could never hurt, be hurt, who was immune from the suffering of the human experience. He was just sort of a, a God in disguise in the flesh. But no, the Bible says, no, Jesus is every bit as fully human as you and me. In the same skin, same blood running through his veins. He was born into the same conditions. He suffered the same human realities. He was and is, to this day, fully human, just like us, born of Mary. But on the other hand, we also see that this truth affirms that Jesus is fully God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which meant he did not carry in him the seed of our father Adam, but that he is divine by nature. Jesus wasn't born as a normal guy and then later get adopted by God as his son. No, he was the son of God from the very start, which means Jesus isn't just like God or sort of resemble God, but that he actually is God. That's what incarnation means. Listen to the word, incarnate. In you've had chili con carne, 
chili with meat? Jesus is God concarnate, God with meat, God with flesh. That it says in John that the son who was God, who was with God from the beginning, the word through whom God made the world has become one of us, fully human. And in becoming human, he did not cease to be God. In becoming a man, his Godhead did not diminish in any way. Jesus was fully God. So we end up with these, this really strange and paradoxical truth that because Jesus was born of Mary, he's completely human. Uh, but because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is completely God. Because he was fully human, he's just like us. But because he's fully God, he is completely unlike us. Uh, Jesus is fully God. He's fully human. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. I know that's crazy math and it doesn't really work. But hey, uh, if you understood everything about God, then he wouldn't really be God. He would just be a figment of human imagination. So this is the great truth that the virgin birth points to, is that we need a savior who is both fully God and fully man. This is the truth of the incarnation on which our salvation rests. So that leads us really to the second important question is, is why is this important? Why is this such a big deal? And simply put, it's important because our whole faith depends on it. If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, then the Christian faith doesn't make any sense. It completely falls apart. It's a sham. It's a scam. It's a ruse. But if it's true, as we believe it is, then it changes everything. Then, verse 37, as the angel says to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Everything is changed if the truth of the incarnation is real. So let's talk about that. Especially in this moment of great crisis that we in our world find ourselves in, what difference does the incarnation make? I just want to unpack a few implications for us, okay? First of all, first implication of the incarnation for our moment is this, that because of this, we have a healed relationship with God. The Bible says we have a really serious problem. It's a problem that is bigger than any problem in your life right now. It's a problem that is bigger than any problem that any human has ever faced. And that is that we are separated from God. That we're separated from God because of our sin. That our sin, uh, our self-centeredness, our rebellion has put up a wall, uh, a separation between us and the God who made us. And this is tragic because knowing God is one of the main reasons that human beings exist. Just like, a, 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 just like my watch exists to tell time and a toaster exists to make toast, and the Bible says human beings exist to know and relate to the God who made them. So the great tragedy of the human existence is, is that because of sin, human beings who were made by God and like God and for God to live with God are destined to live without God forever. This is the great tragedy, the biggest problem of our human experience. But the promise of the gospel in the incarnation is, is that God has acted to send someone to heal the breach, to heal the relationship with God that is broken. Let me just illustrate this. Let's say there's uh, two people. Let's just, call, let's just call them A and B, two people who were in a really close relationship with each other, uh, but some terrible conflict has happened. Some, some breach of trust has occurred. Their relationship has fragmented. 
uh, and fallen apart. Uh, and they've tried to reconcile together, but they just, they just can't. So what do they need? They need a mediator. You know, they need a reconciler. They need a go-between, someone who can, who can bring them together and bring healing to their relationship. Let's just call the, that person that they need M. They need, they need a mediator, right? Well, what kind of person does that mediator need to be? Uh, it needs to be someone that they both trust, that they both respect. Uh, it needs to be someone who is close enough to both A and B that they can fully represent each A and B and their interests, and yet they also need to be distinct enough from A and B that they are not fully identified with either. Does that make sense? That's the kind of mediator that we need, that B can be represented to A and A can be represented to B. And this is the mediator that God has given us in the person of Jesus. First Timothy 2 says, there is but one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Jesus Christ. Listen, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying if Jesus were just a man like us, he'd be part of the problem. He would need saving. He would need forgiveness. He would need reconciliation. He wouldn't be part of the solution. He'd be part of the problem if Jesus were just a man. However, if Jesus were only God, then he would have no contact with us. He would have no way to relate to us. He would have no way that he could live for us or die for us or suffer for us, or represent us on God's behalf. Yet to truly be our Savior, he needs to be both God and man, representing God to us, and representing us to God. And that's what Jesus has done. He has brought about a healed relationship between us and God, because he is our mediator. That's the good news, brothers and sisters of the incarnation, is that you can have a healed relationship with God, no matter your guilt, no matter your past, no matter your the, the secret stuff that you're hiding in your life, uh, no matter what you are ashamed of or what guilt you carry, your relationship with God can be completely healed. And it isn't because you worked hard at it or, or because you've lived a good life or because you go to church or because you read your Bible. It's, it's only because of the one mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who has healed things. You know, you might... I just want to say this. I'm sure that there are at least a couple folks who are listening today who may more than ever before be feeling the need for God in your life. You know, when life, when life, were, when life is going well, uh, when things are ever going fine, when you don't feel uh, insecure, when the stock market's great, your job's going great, the world's going great, it's easy to not feel a need for God. But what God often does is he often uses Moments of great instability, uncertainty, and even pain to, to splash cold water in our face, to wake us up to the reality that we were made for God and we need God in our life. And if that's you, if you're feeling a deeper need for God in your life than you've ever felt before, what should you do? Should you read a book or pray real hard? Or, well, look, the, the, the singular thing that you're called to do is look to Jesus, to trust in the mediator, the one who can heal your relationship with God, to trust him and the work that he's done for you. And I'll also just say this, that God has done, for, for those of you who do know the Lord and who are followers of Christ, I just want to say this, that God has done everything to draw near to you. What are you doing to draw near to him? Are you, you might have a little extra time these days. What space are you making in your life 
to draw near to him, to be with him, to spend time with him, knowing just how committed God has been to heal his relationship with you. So that's the first resource the incarnation gives us, is a healed relationship with God. Uh, the second thing um, I think, and I actually just decided to throw this in this morning because I was, um, I was thinking about it, and, and, and the second thing I want to say is the incarnation gives us a resource for our relationships. You know, if there's anything we've seen, I think, in the, in the last couple weeks, it's that we have this deep longing for human connectivity and relationships. Uh, we all, in our isolation, want to be connected to each other. On the other hand, we've also seen, more than ever before, that relationships are intensely difficult. Uh, and that many of us are in, in closed spaces with the people that we know the best and the people that know, best, know us best, but maybe we're experiencing difficulty and conflict like never before. China is ahead of us a little bit in this. Um, there's a, the, the most popular digital platform in China is called Weibo, and there was a question that was put out in China, what is the first thing you're going to do after the quarantine? And the number one answer was divorce. <laughs> and in fact, and it was kind of a joke, uh, but on, in early March, when the courts opened back up again, divorce rates skyrocketed in March. Because this is what happens when we're in closed spaces, all of our neuroses and selfishness begin to emerge to the surface. The incarnation gives us a powerful resource for how we relate to each other um, in the midst of this crucible. You might have uh, known about that wonderful book years ago that uh, Gary Chapman wrote, called Love Languages, in which he talks about how each of us have a specific way that we give and receive love, a language, if you will, that we learned from our parents and our households growing up. Um, and so, for instance, if your love language is quality time or acts of service, you really value you know, your, your spouse helping around the house or helping with the kids or whatever, that's the way that you give and receive love. Maybe your spouse's love language is encouraging words so all day long, they could be telling you how great you are and how wonderful you are and how awesome you are, but if they're not doing a thing to help, you are only experiencing desolation. You are not feeling any love at all. And so what often happens is that two people stuck in a, in a confined space can both be demanding that the other person speak their love language, understand me, come into my world, understand the way my needs work, and all the while, they can be just becoming more and more estranged. And so what we see in the incarnation is this great truth that when God wanted to relate to us, he entered into our world. He did not seek uh, to demand that we enter into his, but he entered into ours. And so we can put that principle to work right now. If you're having trouble in your relationships right now, why not wake up in the morning and say, Lord, help me to go the way of Jesus today. Help me to go the way of the incarnation. Help me not so much to demand that uh, this other understands my love language, but give me what I need to understand theirs. Help me not so much to be understood, but to understand. Help me not so much to demand that my needs are met, but that I can meet the needs of others. Uh, let me go the way of Jesus. Let me enter into the world of the other for the sake of love. I, I need that prayer right now, and I know that many of you do too, maybe not just with your spouse, but with your children or your roommates or your work colleagues, or whoever it may be. Uh, let's go the way of love for each other. So a resource for relationships. Third, uh, the incarnation gives us comfort in suffering. You know, the truth of the incarnation is amazing because it tells us that God knows what it's like to be us. Uh, God is not up there somewhere detached from our pain and our sorrow, but he's come down to bear our sorrow and our pain with us. And because of that, we have a God 
that we can deeply trust because he knows what it's like right now to be in the position that we're in. Suppose that someone, a friend comes to you and tells you that they are deeply grieving because their mother has recently died. Uh, what do you do? Well, you know, if you're like me, you, you would want to empathize with them. You know, in my situation, I'm, my mother is fully alive. In fact, I think she's watching right now. Hey, hey mom, nice to see you. Um, and so if I'm going to care for that person well, I have to imagine what it would be like to lose my mother. I have to try to put myself into my friend's shoes and imagine what she's going through and then try to respond. That's, that's empathy. Empathy means suffering alongside. Uh, and empathy is a, is a needed skill uh, for many relationships. But imagine a different scenario that your mother did actually also die a few years ago. And in this case, your friend comes to you and tells you that she's grieving and that her mother has died and she's feeling like an orphan, she's feeling rootless. Well, in this case, you can honestly say, I know your pain. I know how you feel. Do you see how much more credible and trustworthy uh, and robust your comfort can be? Because you are literally saying, I am in your shoes with you. That is sympathy, which comes from the root word sim, which means with, and pathos, which means passion or to suffer. That we suffer with one another because we know each other's pain. And this is what God has given us in Jesus. He says, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God suffers with us. He doesn't need to empathize. He sympathizes because he has come alongside us to bear our pain with us. You know, right now, we find ourselves um, in a moment that, you know, I actually heard Brene Brown, the famous psychologist, say this this week, that we are in a moment of collective vulnerability. And it's collective because the entire world is feeling that, we are all together feeling the fragility, feeling uh, the instability and the worry and the fear. Uh, have you noticed this week that when you say to someone, how are you? That suddenly it's no longer just like a shallow transactional phrase, how are you? It actually means, how are you? Because every single person you meet right now has a story of anxiety or fear. Every single person that you meet. We are all experiencing this collective vulnerability. And let me ask you this, what kind of God do you want? when the whole world together is experiencing collective vulnerability. Do you want a God that is way up here, detached from the suffering and the struggle of the world? Is that the kind of God you want? No. You want a God that is right there in sharing that collective vulnerability with us. And this is the God that we have in Jesus Christ, a God who has known hunger and, and sorrow and uncertainty and abandonment and isolation, a, a God who has known helplessness and scarcity, um, a God who Jesus was socially, eternally socially isolated from the Father, the one th with whom he spent eternity with, separated voluntarily from the Godhead, detached from the one he loves. Friends, we, the, the God that we worship, shares that collective vulnerability with us. And that doesn't necessarily solve your situation or answer all of your problems, but it gives us what we need. It gives us a God who is with us, 
who knows our sorrows, who knows our pain, who knows our uncertainty and our fear. See, only Christianity gives you a God who takes the pain and the brokenness of our world so seriously that he came down to bear it with us. Sympathy with the with us God is what we're given in Jesus. Comfort in our suffering. One last thing. The incarnation gives us courage for the future. You know, we mentioned uh, Mary in the beginning, and, you know, it occurred to me this week that there's only two other people other than Jesus mentioned in the creed, which is remarkable, uh, that there would be two people who are so central to the story of Jesus that they're forever codified in the historic uh, articulation of our faith. And, the, and one is a man, one's a woman, uh, one is Pontius Pilate, and one is Mary, uh, one was responsible for the death of our Lord. The other was responsible for the birth of our Lord. One showed utter failure in the face of a crisis. The other showed unbelievable courage and faith in the face of a crisis. Can you imagine what it was like uh, to be little Mary? Uh, this, this young woman engaged to be Mary who suddenly hears from an angel that she is going to give birth. Can you imagine uh, what was going through the mind of this young woman? Will I survive the delivery? Uh, will I be able to care for this child? Can I afford this child? Uh, what are, will people say as they see my belly grow before the wedding? What will Joseph say? What will my parents say? What will my community say. I mean, as the more she thought about it, I think the more she must have recognized that this was going to be a complete overturning of her life. This truly represented an apocalyptic event for Mary. The, the script of her life was rewritten at that moment, and a big question mark hung over her future. And that's the way a lot of us feel right now. Big question mark over our futures. For many of you, so much change has happened in the last two weeks, because of the amount of money that you've lost, the business that you've lost, the health that you've lost, so much has changed in the last two weeks that there is a big question mark hanging over your future and the script is torn up and thrown to the floor. What do we do when the script gets rewritten for our lives? Well, look what Mary did. She knew that God was not some far off God distant from her, but that she was given a promise of a rescuer to go into it with her. And so this Mary, mighty Mary, full of grace, trusts in the promise of God given to her, surrenders her life as God's servant, and she moves forward in courage and faith into the unknown. And friends, this is what the incarnation gives us. It gives us what it gave Mary. We know, like Mary, guys, I, don't, guys, I, I gotta admit to you, I don't, I, I don't know what's ahead. Uh, I don't know what kind of unknowns are before us. It could get worse before it gets better. I don't know. But let's look at what Mary did. She knew that no amount of economic or political or cultural upheaval that may come, no amount of loss or grief that may hit us, no amount of suffering and pain that we have to endure, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Redeemer. The incarnation means that God has not abandoned us, that God has come to us, God is for us, God is with us. And so that means no matter what happens in the day ahead, no matter what happens, we, like Mary, will see the redemption that God will bring. We will see the restoration of all things. We will see the healing of the nations. We will see 
the forgiveness of sin. Uh, we will see the renewal of all things. So friends, let's move forward like Mary and say, I am the Lord's servant. Lead me forward into the unknown because I know that thou art with me. Let's pray that God gives us courage and faith for that today. Father, thank you for the great truth of the incarnation that gives us so many resources for this moment. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would give us courage and faith to trust you as we move ahead to the unknowns. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.